Okay, before we get into the sermon this morning, uh, I mentioned this in the summit on Friday, but Colleen Nanachuk has three weeks left here before she leaves for Argentina. And she had the idea of getting a picture of our church, which is on this side, and it's signed by all the individuals, um, couples, families in our church on the back side. Then she's going to get it copied, and she's going to make six of them because the work that she's going to be doing in Argentina moves in and through six churches. And so this is part of a welcoming package that she wants to bring to the churches in Argentina as she transitions down there for two years. And so what I'm going to do, this is going to be available this Sunday and next Sunday and then Colleen's final Sunday on July 8th where we're going to be commissioning her and praying for her. But I'm just going to send this through the rows and if we could just make sure it gets through everybody and you can just sign your name, that would be awesome. There's a pen there and we can do that as we start up this morning. Also, a welcome back to Blair and Noreen. Hello, little family. Yeah, you can say hi. <laughs> Growing family. It's awesome to have you guys back and pray that your time here. I don't think you're here for very long, are you? But I pray that it's refreshing and that uh, you're definitely missed and loved by this community. And uh, just be prepared to face a lot of hugs on your, we already had some on your way in, but it might be even more on your way out this morning. Yeah, that's awesome. It's great to have you guys. So we are moving into a, uh, a series on Ephesians. And Ephesians is a book, not, not very long, only a few chapters, but it is very, very dense. We're actually still not going to get into Ephesians today because there's a few more things that we have to do in terms of setting the context for the letter. So if you're unfamiliar with the Bible or what I'm even talking about when I say Ephesians, let me just sort of set the, the context for you. So in terms of the biblical timeline, Old Testament to the New Testament where Jesus comes, we're in the New Testament. We are after the life of Jesus, we're after the death of Jesus, we're after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, we're after Pentecost where the Holy Spirit is breathed out on the church. Their church has started to go out in power. Uh, a few years after that, a, uh, a man named Saul has an encounter with the risen Jesus. Jesus changes his name to Paul, makes him an apostle, and then over the next 25 years, give or take three or four years, this man named Paul, the apostle, who's given special um, authority to lead and to plant and to establish churches, goes on three missionary journeys. The first one begins around 45 AD after he's been a Christian for about 10 years. The next one is six years later, and the next one is about another three or four years later. Then, another eight years pass. This man named Paul, nearing the end of his late, late 50s probably, is imprisoned in Rome. And he writes a series of letters called epistles. If you have, have ever heard of certain books of the Bible called the epistle of Ephesians or Colossians, that's just a fancy word that means letters. They were letters written by a leader in the church to another church to encourage and strengthen and challenge them. In this prison, in his late 50s, Paul writes the book or the letter to the Ephesians, who were people who lived in a Roman city called Ephesus. So that's why it's called Ephesians. It's written to them from Paul. Um, it's probably fairly important before we get into the letter. I talked a little bit about the context a few weeks ago, but I... There is a, an, there's a whole chapter in the Bible, Acts chapter 19, the whole chapter, and we're going to look at that this morning. 
And that tells us what happened to Paul and as a result of Paul's ministry in the city of Ephesus because on his third missionary journey, he stays in Ephesus for two years and he teaches there and he has a ministry there. It's actually the longest stint that Paul stays anywhere on any of his missionary journeys. So he uh, plows a lot of ground here. He makes a pretty substantial investment of time. And Acts 19 and what happens there will be very, very helpful for you as we transition into the letter itself because it's gonna give you a really rich context and you're gonna realize, okay, this is a letter that was written to a community that these things in Acts 19 happened to about a decade before, eight or nine years before. So when you're reading the letter to Ephesians, what you always wanna do is remember everything that happens in Acts 19 because Acts 19 tells us kind of how the church in Ephesus got started what kind of environment the church was birthed into. And along the way, as we move through Acts 19, there's a lot of amazing, cool lessons here. So we're just gonna go through the whole cha chapter. I'm gonna teach through it. And then starting next week, we'll move into Ephesians chapter one, verse one. So Acts 19, remember the book of Acts is a highlight reel. From the first chapter to the last chapter, it covers a span of 30 years within the church. So these are things that happened over a long stretch of time. And chapter 19, is zooming in on Paul's third missionary journey when he stops in Ephesus, the entire chapter devoted to that. Verse one, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus, where he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, no, we haven't even heard there's a Holy Spirit. Okay, let's stop there for a second. Paul meets these self-professed disciples, they call themselves disciples, but there's something about these disciples that were off or at least raised a yellow flag for Paul. There's something about how they talk about their faith or how they live out their faith that seems, has some dissonance, some incongruity with how he'd expect the disciple of Jesus to talk or act. And maybe it's not necessarily anything overtly wrong, but he's trying to drill down because something is definitely off. And so he says, did you guys receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they're like, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. So right away, that's a huge red flag for Paul because if you haven't heard of the Holy Spirit, then whatever faith you have, it's not actually faith in the true triune God. One God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when Jesus gave the Great Commission and said, go into all the world and make disciples, Jesus said, baptize them in the name of what? The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Paul's now trying to figure out, wait a sec, there are these disciples who say they're following Jesus, but they haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit, which means they don't have a proper view of God, which means they likely don't have a proper view of who Jesus is, because Jesus is the second person of the triune Godhead. So the faith, whatever faith these guys think they have, it's, it's not biblical. Now, we're going to see here in a moment, their faith is very sincere, but it's not biblical. And that's one point that I would draw out of this text. Biblical faith is always sincere, but you can also have a sincere faith in God, but it isn't actually biblical. You might use words that the Bible uses, but you're not actually believing in the God that's revealed in Scripture. So biblical faith is always sincere, but sincere faith isn't always biblical. We know that their faith is sincere. They're not trying to 
deceive themselves or anyone else because in verse 3, Paul says, what baptism did you receive? And they're like, oh, John's baptism, John the Baptist. And then Paul said, well, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, and he told people to believe in the one that was coming after him, that is Jesus. So Paul was like, John's baptism was just a precursor to Jesus' life and ministry, and now that Jesus has come and died and resurrected, baptisms are done in his name. And they're like, oh, on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and they prophesied and there were about 12 men in all. So these were sincere uh, men, but they were also misinformed. They didn't, hadn't drilled down into some of the precision of who God says he is and how, what it means to actually follow Jesus, the Christ, the God-man, fully God and fully human. And in, in one sense, Paul had to direct them to not just faith in God in a nebulous sense, but Paul was trying to drill down and say, have you put your faith in Christ or just kind of God? Because if it's just God, what do you mean by God? Paul wants to drill down and said, have you been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Then they get baptized. And, you know, my second point here would just be that baptism is important. Depending on the church tradition that you come from, some people um, are hotter or colder when it comes to baptism, but I think baptism is really, really important. Not because it saves you. The Bible's very clear that baptism has no power. The water isn't magic. But publicly declaring before other people, I have turned my life over to Jesus and I'm being baptized into Jesus, into Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then what you're doing is you're declaring to other people, which first forces you to get clarity on yourself and your own views, that I'm being baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus. That as I get baptized here this morning, what I'm essentially doing is saying, the core of my identity and who I am is no longer mine to set. I'm now placing myself in Christ. I'm dying to my own agenda. And when I come up out of the waters, I'm identifying myself with Jesus. He is my life. I now want you to understand my life because I understand my life as now taking part in Christ. And that's a phrase, in Christ, that Paul's going to talk about a lot in Ephesians. And now I'm living for his agenda, and I'm living for the glory of God. Which God? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The true God revealed in Scripture and ultimately um, and perfectly in the life of Jesus. Now, it says that they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. And again, sometimes this text is used to say, see, if you're, if you're really baptized and really filled with the Spirit, you'll have these signs that will accompany that baptism. I take a different reading of that. I take that reading that this is God's way of confirming that what Paul says was true, that simply being involved in John's baptism of repentance isn't enough because it shows a, a lack of a faith in Jesus. You have to be baptized into the name of Jesus. When these men do, they, the Holy Spirit fills them and they display these signs so that publicly people can say, oh, Paul is actually legit. There's confirmation that his way of understanding baptism and what it means to follow Jesus is confirmed and it's real. Verse 8, Paul entered the synagogue boldly there in Ephesus for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. 
But some of them were obstinate, and they refused to believe and publicly malign the way. So Paul left them, and he took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So Paul sets up this discipleship training school. He starts in the synagogue. They're kind of like, Paul, we've heard enough. We reject this message. He's like, fine, I'm out. He either finds someone named Tyrannus who's a friend, or he rents what would have been seen as almost like a university lecture hall, and he teaches there when it's not being used by regular um, instructors, and he has the followers of Jesus in Ephesus come there, and he teaches them every single day for two years. And what's implied there when it talks about um, all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia, not just in the city of Ephesus, but the province of Asia, Asia, is Paul is probably imitating Jesus by training his disciples and then ultimately sending them out, likely in twos, the different places, the different towns, on missionary journeys, micro-missionary journeys to establish other churches or to at least proclaim the gospel um, from that place of discipleship. And I think this is really important, and there's a little clue in the text, actually. Um, well, let me, let me start with my statement. My statement, and I think one of the takeaways here, is that the gospel, the good news of what God has done in and through Jesus, it spreads primarily through biblical discipleship. The gospel, people usually become Christians as a result of a pre-existing commitment on the part of Christians to be involved in biblical discipleship. And the reason why I say that is because the text makes it very clear that Paul is discipling these people, the word of the Lord is going out to all of Asia, then the next part talks about all the miracles and the amazing, powerful signs that happened through Paul, but that's like an after thing. What Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is clearly trying to show us is that while the signs and the miracles of Paul were awesome and they confirmed the message, the reason why, how did God spread his church, it was through biblical discipleship. And that's why I have a passion personally and for our church and for all churches to be growing in our engagement with the word of God and applying it to our lives every day. Every day, for every month, for years, for two years, for five years, that's the way that the gospel spreads. Is as people take the word of God seriously, are humbly submitted to Jesus, and are seeking to love God and love their neighbor and allowing the Bible to constantly challenge them on how to do that in their everyday life. Now, verse 11, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even the handkerchiefs and aprons that touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. And they would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this and one day, the evil, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? And the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. And when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number of people who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. And in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. 
Okay, let me just break down what's happening here. God's confirming Paul's authority to teach as, to teach in authoritative ways for the early church through these powerful signs and healings. Other people, apparently who dabble or attempt to do exorcism, see what Paul's doing and they're kind of like, oh, that's a cool technique. I want to add that to my tool belt of um, kind of tips and tricks on how to exercise demons. It backfires on them. Now, there's actually no historical record of a legitimate Jewish high priest named Sceva. So what most scholars believe, and there's evidence to support this in the next few verses that follow, is that this is, might have been a kind of renegade Jewish, Jewish sect or cult leader named Sceva, who had seven sons, who had created his own kind of cult that was sort of a mixing together or syncretism, which means mixing of religious beliefs, between some elements of biblical uh, Judaism, Jewish thought, and kind of sorcery, witchcraft, um, magic practice. And they kind of smashed it together, maybe self-proclaimed himself as a high priest of this movement, and went around trying to exert spiritual power and force through the city of Ephesus. Now, what this passage makes really, really clear, and certainly if you've been involved in, in the church for a long time, you'll probably have picked up one way or the other, is that sorcery, which is just a word that means the practice of magic, is thoroughly condemned in scripture in any form that it is expressed. Sorcery, the practice of magic, is thoroughly condemned in scripture. God forbids the Israelites in the Old Testament to practice sorcery. He even attaches the death penalty to it in Exodus. It's a no-go zone. It's like a one strike and you're out, okay? Um, I have listed in your handout notes a few of the verses that hold together all the different expressions of sorcery, the practice of magic, that God says, for my people, these are a no-go. Under no circumstances, whether or not you're serious or just playing around with it or it's not a big deal, or you, you might minimize it. God does not minimize this. Astrology, divination, witchcraft, omens, mediums, necromancy, attempting to contact or speak to the dead, any kind of spells. Now I want to stop here and make sure we understand why this is forbidden. Sorcery in both the Old Testament and many New Testament passages, so it's not something that was just for God's people in the Old Testament, but now we have freedom in Christ to do whatever we want as it relates to magic practice. All the way through the scripture, God says, do not participate in sorcery. That is, in a sense, a capital offense in the Old Testament, and it is always and thoroughly condemned in the New Testament. Why? Sorcery, whether it's a seance, whether it's using crystals or spells, it is an attempt to access spiritual power in order to affect the physical material world without God. And that without God and outside of God's uh, protection and power is the important part because it is not sinful to want to access spiritual power in order to transform the physical world right now. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, God, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I want the spiritual power of heaven to be established in such a way that it actually changes and transforms and restores life on earth. Sorcery attempts to bypass God 
as the authority and mediator of how that power gets played out and says, I want access to spiritual power on my own terms, in my way, outside of how God says to access it, so that I can bring to bear in this world whatever my end is. Sometimes those ends might even be noble. I want to bring healing into this world, or I want to bring um, hope um, in, in terms of like white witchcraft. And obviously there could be malicious intent. Uh, um, summoning, you know, in the most extreme form, would be summoning demonic uh, forces, inviting uh, demonic possession in order to gain access to certain kinds of knowledge or power. But I want to, again, just drill down and make sure we understand why sorcery, the practice of magic in all of its forms, is always condemned. Because it means that if you are practicing magic, what you're doing is you are consulting and seeking to rely on another spiritual power outside of God, which first of all reveals your lack of faith and trust in God. And secondly, if what the Bible says is true, that there is a spiritual realm that is really real and it isn't just full of creatures that are in service of God, but it also has creatures that are bent against the will of God, and the biblical term for that is demons, angels who have moved away from God's purposes and align themselves with the great deceiver, Lucifer. If you are accessing spiritual power, but you are disconnecting that mode of access from the triune God, and you're not attempting to access that power in the way that God says to access that power, through disciplines like prayer, fasting, confession, prayer, broadly speaking, what powers are you actually accessing? Yeah, the, the most gracious way you could say it is you are inviting powers that are not of God into your life, and you are consulting them. And that's why Paul in Romans will go one step further and say that this is demonic activity. That this is, you are consulting demons. Now, you might not know that. I understand that a, someone who's involved in, let's say, white witchcraft um, might not even believe in Satan, but scripturally, the line of thinking of God's revelation goes, God has spiritual power on access for you in and through Jesus. It's bound through certain practices that Jesus reveals and that all of God's people through all time have done. If you try and bypass that, you are putting yourself in a spiritually dangerous and vulnerable place. Not because you're just accessing powers that aren't real and um, are just figments of the imagination, but you're putting yourself in a vulnerable place because there are actually powers and principalities. Paul's going to talk about this in Ephesians 6. There are powers and principalities that want to um, provide you with guidance, with leadership, with signs, with uh, experiences that will deepen your dependence on them and draw you away from dependence on God's Holy Spirit through his word. And so that's why magic is always forbidden. 
because it's an attempt to harness spiritual power outside of the protection that God provides as we come to God in and through Christ. And you're opening yourself up to, to a greater or lesser extent, whether or not you're aware of it, to forces, personalities, spirits, uh, scripture will use a bunch of different language for it, but Paul will ultimately say anti-God, demonic voices. So this is not something to trifle with. Verse 18 to 20, Jews and Greeks hear Paul's message. They repent, they turn from their evil, they gather together, and I think the inference here in the Greek is both Jews and Greek who were practicing this kind of sorcery. Again, that the, there were some Jewish believers who obviously would have been pure to the text and others maybe who were part of this cult of Sceva. They gather together 50,000 drachmas worth of magic scrolls, occult literature in a sense. Now, for context, a drachma is one day's wage. Minimum wage in BC is 12.65. One working day, you make about 100 bucks. You do the math, carry the the two. That's $5 million worth of occult literature piled at some point in the city and set fire to. Now, when you understand the scale of that response, I want to ask you two questions, and I invite you to actually respond to them right now. What does that tell you about the city of Ephesus? What does it tell you about the city of Ephesus? Huge involvement with sorcery and the occult. This is not a small little niche thing where like a few people were like, yeah, I've been dabbling in some bad stuff. This is something which was systemic and we'll understand why as we move through Ephesians. They were wealthy. One of the things you're going to find out about Ephesians is it is the center point of trade in the ancient world. If not the first, maybe the second. Uh, There's some debate about that. But this was a very wealthy city. This was a city of power. This was a cosmopolitan city. And because it was a trade route that linked east and western, uh, um, the east and the west along major trade routes that uh, weren't by ship, although it was a port city as well, just huge amounts of wealth poured into this city. And I'll show you some pictures later on, but this is a really, really cool, amazing architecture that went into this place, both in terms of some of its major buildings and living quarters. This is one of the first Roman cities that had uh, warm baths, had warm, had running water, had plumbing. This was a tremendously wealthy city. It was a wealthy city that had a lot of, um, there was definitely a culture of occult involvement. Now, what does this response tell us about the consequences of responding to the gospel and becoming a believer in Jesus? Cost. Their response right away was to look at all this stuff that Paul, in light of the scripture, says, as a follower of Jesus, this can't be a part of your life anymore. You know what they don't say? This is worth a lot of stuff. I'm going to put it on Kijiji. Why? Because you're just passing on that occult stuff to someone else. So this practice ends right now. Cold turkey. 
boom, up in flames. They destroy it. Now, again, that, how we apply that to our lives today, that's a very, very important question. But it's important to note that the Ephesian believers, when they put their faith in Jesus, they, they burned the bridges. There, there wasn't any going back. This wasn't like, well, you know, I'm definitely going to like one foot in Jesus and then we'll see how this works out. I don't know. They understood Paul's message to be baptized into Jesus is you're baptized into his death. That means whatever is a part of your life that is anti-Jesus and anti the kingdom of God, you've got to put it to death. Now, that doesn't mean that their lives became perfect all of a sudden. Otherwise, Paul doesn't have to write the book of Ephesians. You're going to see that they have to grow in their understanding. But where there were very clear, obvious, anti-Jesus, anti-biblical practices, they didn't say, well, I don't know, like, I'll keep it involved in my life. Like, I won't do it as much, but I don't know. I, I look at the astrology in the morning paper. Like, it's, it's just a fun thing. You know, it, it's just a, it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's like a little hobby. It's not a big deal. I don't like really trust in it. They're just like, no. They just cut off all lines. After all of this happened, all these people are coming to faith. They're bringing what are symbolic of their old spiritual practices and allegiances and burning them publicly. People are like, what? That's crazy. Look at all this money. What a waste. What are they doing? Who is this Jesus? Why would you do that? After all of this happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. That was what Christianity was called before it was called Christianity. It was called the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines to Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. And he called them together along with the workers and related trades. And he said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul is convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in, and in practically the whole province of Asia. Paul says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Okay, plot twist. Let's put up the slide. This is a picture of the temple of Artemis, or Artemis is the Greek name, slash Diana, which was the Roman god's name. This was not in the city of Ephesus. It was outside the city of Ephesus because it was built on the site of a meteor impact that happened a number of decades earlier, uh, centuries earlier, that people believed was a, not just a sign, but actually the goddess Diana coming down to earth. And so they built what probably would have been a rough-hewn statue from the meteor. Then they built this around it. This took over a century to build. It had over 120 columns that, uh, I forget the exact height, I think there were at least six or seven stories. This is a massive investment of time. I mean, you're talking about three, maybe even four generations in the same family of men who would have worked on one pillar. The amount of money that went into this thing was massive. As it gets built, it actually becomes and houses the largest centralized bank in the Roman Empire. People put their treasures in its vault underneath. This becomes symbolic of not only wealth, 
but also the power of Diana, who is a female goddess of fertility and a goddess who would also promise to save women as they went through childbearing. In the ancient world, the size of your temple is correlated to the greatness of your God. If you have a tiny temple, your God's a God, but it's like, eh, it's like level one God. If you have a big temple, you have a big and powerful God. And there were not many temples in the ancient world that were this big. I mean, if, you wa- if that was still erected today and you could walk in front of it, that would still send shivers up your spine at its scale. But that, we're living in a world where there's architecture that dwarfs that in terms of size. But in the ancient world, there were not many things like this. And that's why in the ancient world, the temple of Artemis was declared one of the seven wonders of the world. It was seen as a gift gift of the gods, one of the heights and apexes of human ingenuity. And the amount of um, money that flowed through this, and what happened is you had these silversmiths who would make micro-idols that tourists, that, you know, in a sense, pilgrims, people that were coming through, people that wanted the blessing of Diana or Artemis on their lives, they could take it, they could pray to the statue and put it up in their home. These guys were starting to feel the pinch because demand for their idols had gone down because so many people were becoming Christians and they were learning that gods made by human hands aren't gods at all. This whole thing, it's just a lie. You want to come see the temple of the living God? They would have said, come to, come to a church on Sunday. Church didn't look like this in the first century. It looked like maybe 15, 30 people scattered in households, meeting together, prayer, breaking bread. Completely different temple than what the world said your temple had to look like if your God was so awesome. And yet these Christians were saying, our God is so awesome that, you know what? He, he's not making a temple made of ivory and jewels and stuff like that. He's making a temple of people. And I'm actually one of, and Peter will say this, that I'm actually one of the stones that is being built into this spiritual temple. That's how great my God is. Silversmiths start to get antsy because so many people are becoming Christians. Demand for their product is going down. So you have this Demetrius guy, right, who's essentially saying, okay, we got to do something about this Paul guy and his message because we're starting, it's starting to impact us financially. We t- uh, it's also about the glory of Artemis for sure, but, you know, nudge, nudge, there is, there's a precipitous fall in our idol-making income if this continues. So we need to do something about this. When the silversmiths, verse 28, heard this, they were furious and they began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And soon the whole city was in an uproar. There's this frenzied riot that begins to take place. Paul is bringing this evil. He's bringing calamity upon us. All these bad things are going to happen. Start slandering Paul. Um, uh, he's, He's leading us into ruin. They seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Hold that in your mind's eye because it's not like a movie theater like we think about it. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd. So Paul's like, I'm going to go. I will stand in front of these people. But the disciples wouldn't let him. They're like, Paul, no, they're going to they're kill you. Like, we'll go. We need to hide you away. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, he has friends in high places in Rome, 
They sent Paul a message begging him not to go into the theater. They're like, it's a death sentence. You're just going to die. These people are have, have just their tipping point of madness. They're out for blood. <clears throat> the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him, kind of like, tell them, like, we're not, like, don't kill us. <laughs> Go say something, Alexander. You're good with words. Just kind of calm the crowds. When they realized that Alexander was a Jew, they shouted in unison for about two hours, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Let's put up the next slide. This is the amphitheater in Ephesus that is still there today. Almost every historian will tell you this is a abs an absolute marvel. Paul would have been down uh, in the white, bleached. Um, oh, the disciples would have been down there. And this amphitheater, which swings around to this side, holds 25,000 people. That's the size of Nelson, and again, and 50% in a localized theater, right? You know this if you've been to, like, let's say, a professional NHL hockey game, 25, 30,000 people chanting. You know what that can feel like when you are in that kind of environment, and those sound waves, and the yells are, you're feeling it in your body, right? You can feel the vibration of the noise. Everyone stand for a second. This is a confined space. for two hours. This service has only been going on for an hour and 20 minutes. You'd still be yelling for 40 more minutes, pounding your feet. Imagine if you're the disciples looking up at this. This is, this is game over. You are dead men walking. And then it says, the city clerk quieted the crowd and said, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed the temples or blasphemed our goddess. And if then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls and they can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in legal assembly. As it is, we're in danger of being charged with rioting because of what has happened today. Rome was very strict about public riots or things getting out of control. 
So this guy's like, if we go through with this and kill these people, our, all of our necks are on the line in terms of Rome. Rome doesn't like these flash mobs gathering and execute, executing vigilante justice, no matter how right they might be. Go through the proper legal channels. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there's really no reason for it. And after he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. 25,000 people, probably begrudgingly, begin to filter out of this massive amphitheater. And the disciples are just there, and they're just like, what? Just saved by, a, you know, this little clerk who's like, hey, technically this isn't actually part of our law, and we should do things by the book. Acts 19 is really important to have in your head and in your imagination as you move into the book of Ephesians. Because the book of Ephesians is written about eight years later after this event, written to a church that was founded in the constellation of what was happening in Acts 19. Acts 19 is sort of the birth of and tells the story of this church in Ephesus. And then when we get to the letter, we have Paul's letter written from prison nearing the end of his life, almost 60 years old. He's now writing to this community that he has a vested interest in. He spent years here. He's writing to a group of Christians that are in one of the most difficult and challenging places in the ancient world to talk about Jesus because of the wealth that's at stake, because of the cost associated to, with them, because of the prevalence of alternative spiritual practices and occult practices. But Paul writes because he has a vested interest in seeing the church thrive in Ephesus. And what I love about Acts 19 is that it shows us that when the gospel gets unleashed and when it takes root in the lives of Christians, that it doesn't just sort of tweak the system. What it does is it begins to overturn the entire kind of pagan apple cart. The gospel leads to tectonic change where entire cities can be turned upside down or right side up depending on your perspective. And so as we move into and through Ephesians, my prayer is that that same thing would happen here in Nelson that the gospel would take root, that the name of Jesus would increasingly be held in high honor, and that the word of God would go out with power. Let's pray.